It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Steve Ducey. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Tyrus. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, March 31st, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. China is growing even closer with Russia as Russia's foreign minister announces they and their sympathizers are moving toward a new world order. What are we going to do when China invades Taiwan? And number one, they say, oh, yeah, if you defend Taiwan, we're not going to let you have any pharmaceuticals. What are we going to do? I'm Dave Anthony. The Supreme Court nominee gets her first Republican vote of confidence, but most other GOP senators oppose Ketanji Brown-Jackson. There's a reason why she was the top choice of many of the far-left groups. I mean, they anticipate that she will follow a fairly liberal interpretation of the Constitution. And I'm Ian Pryor. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. Are we moving toward a new world order? And what would that look like? President Biden uttered the phrase last week at a business roundtable in which he said we're at an inflection point in the economy and in the world. He's painted stark contrast before, saying we're at a crossroads, a time to find out what can succeed, democracies or autocracies. And he urged the CEOs in the room at the roundtable to invest in people and America. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to there's going to be a new world order out there and we've got to lead it and we've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. Russia's foreign minister talked about a new world order as well in China on Wednesday. Before landing in Huangshen, Sergei Lavrov said in a video, we together with you and our sympathizers will move towards a multipolar, just, democratic world order. China's foreign minister said after their meeting, China-Russia relations have withstood the new test of the changing international situation, maintained the correct direction of progress, and shown tenacious development momentum. The U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai testified to a House committee around the time of this meeting that we are realigning the U.S.-China trade relationship. We launched a conversation with the PRC about its phase one purchase commitment shortfalls and broader non-market policies last fall. Those discussions have been unduly difficult and we need to turn the page on the old playbook. Saying it is time to pass legislation to promote investments in innovation, semiconductors, and the return of manufacturing supply chains to the U.S. At yet another House hearing about U.S. troop positioning in Europe, Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs Celeste Wallander mentioned China as well. We know that the PRC and Russia collaborate across a variety of arenas, including joint military exercises. This is an element of strategic competition that the United States is monitoring closely. To some, a new world order is inevitable, requires preparation, and would mean an end, or at the very least a major shift, in the sort of globalization we've heard about for decades now. Russian and China, Putin and Xi, you know, want all of us to work for them. They, they want to control and dominate uh, the world order where they will be at the top. Rick Scott is a Republican senator from Florida. And so we have a choice. We can either continue down the path we're going down where we're not disengaging from doing business uh, with China or not. I mean, it's as simple as this. You look at what's going on with Russia right now, other than maybe people needing their uh, Russian vodka, people are okay with not doing business with Russia. So as Americans, we don't buy their stuff. Companies are disengaging from doing business with Russia. 
We've got to do the same thing with China. I mean, we have to take these uh, thugs at their word. Uh, in the case of Putin, he wants to recreate the Soviet Union. In the case of Xi, they want to dominate the world. Uh, the next step on that will be to take over Taiwan. So we need to take them at their word. They are going to continue to you know, try to expand their territory unless we can stop them. The first step is stop doing business with them. We just got to go well, cold turkey, stop buying their things. And every American company says, I'm going to stop doing business with China. It'll take a while, but we got to get there. Well, I wonder about cold turkey. I know you know the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. She um, testified before the House Ways and Means Committee this week and said that in talks with Beijing about its unmet purchase commitments under the phase one trade deal, that all of it has been unduly difficult, were her words, and that going forward, the strategy needs to mean expanding to include vigorously defending our values and economic interests from the negative impacts of China's economic policies and practices. It sounds like there's some there's a lot of bipartisan on how to handle, I guess, business interests in China. What do you make of her comments? And can you elaborate on going cold turkey? That sounds maybe impossible. Well, it'll be very difficult, but we don't have a choice. First off, the Biden administration has not stood up to China. So the Biden administration's finally got to quit kowtowing to these dictators, which is what they do. And what we've got to do is do everything we can. We need to stop buying our drugs from China. What are we going to do when China invades Taiwan? And number one, they say, oh, yeah, if you defend Taiwan, we're not going to let you have any pharmaceuticals. What are we going to do? Uh, so we don't have a choice. I mean, they're going to invade Taiwan. She has clearly stated that is his goal. So what we need to do is right now, every American company has to say to themselves, I'm not going to continue to put my company at risk. Because look at, look at what's happened to American companies right now. To the extent they have an investment in Russia, they've gotten hurt. So when that happens, we will expect American companies to disengage from China. Would you rather do it after they invade Taiwan or before they invade Taiwan? Well, Senator, the, the president would probably note, you know, hey, he's kept the Trump era tariffs in place on China. He is pushing Congress to pass things like the, you know, the CHIP Act, have more stuff made in the U.S., um, Intel opening more plants and semiconductor facilities here in the U.S. But those those are maybe more longer term efforts. I mean, keeping tariffs in place, obviously a shorter term thing. But how do we handle things in the shorter term? You're saying buy more U.S. made, but that doesn't change the, the supply chain in the short term nothing ever happens i'm a business guy you'd love everything to get fixed in a day that's not how it hmm. happens we can start by requiring all of our companies to disclose where things are made as an example uh, amazon costco walmart they don't do that i mean i think americans right now if they knew where things were made i mean they would buy more american products senator what does world reaction to russia and ukraine mean for Chinese plans for Taiwan. You know, I've been reading as of late uh, headlines, like in the Wall Street Journal, they said Taiwan is looking to Ukraine for defense ideas. And a Reuters headline said, Ukraine war making China more cautious. But at the start of this conflict, there were sort of opposing reports, right? There were headlines like China's emboldened, you know, especially because of their closer ties to Russia that they keep announcing publicly. Does what happens in Ukraine matter to China in terms of attempting any territorial gains. You, you sound like you are pretty bullish on, on China going after Taiwan pretty quickly. Well, Admiral Davidson said it's gonna happen within the next six years. So let's say to ourselves, if, if you know something's gonna happen, then you get prepared. Now what's Taiwan have to do? They have to be committed to defending themselves. So number one, 
Look at what Ukraine's doing and what did Ukraine do to get ready? Taiwan has to do that. Taiwan needs to completely open up their economy so where they have they do more trade with the countries that believe in freedom. Right. And then what we've got to do is our Americans and American companies, you know, we've got to decouple from them. And then we've got to have a plan for our military to be able to support, um, you know, Taiwan, Japan, our allies in defending uh, Taiwan. Are we going to run the risk of, I guess, spreading ourselves thin? I, I know we've heard about, you know, this idea of multiple fronts at the House Armed Services Committee uh, meeting on, on Wednesday. Um, Ranking member Rogers, Republican, said that you know he's been pushing to have permanent bases in, you know, the Baltic states and Romania and Poland. If, if things es- do escalate with China, as you and others are predicting, can our military withstand that? I know we've got the the biggest military in the world, but can can we handle all of these these fronts and all of these anticipations of, of activity? It's going to be very difficult. So here's here's the way I look at it. Number one, we should expect anybody that wants support from us, they do they they even put more resources into their own defense than they would expect from us. And that's number one. So if you're you should not expect America to show up if you're not willing to do it. If your men and women are not willing to put, you know, go fight for your freedom, you should never expect American troops to do do your hard work. That's number one. Number two is we all have to, including every country that believes in democracy, we're going to have to spend more money. We've got to spend it smartly. So if all of democracies around the world, which we have a bigger GDP together uh, than Russia and China do, if we work together, if we put in the resources, if we train our military, train our citizens to be ready, then we are going to win this. How this all feels very precarious and dire. We're talking about decoupling. We're talking we're using terms like new world order. What are things going to look like in the in the near or or even long term future in this in this world? If, if China and Russia are on one side and Europe and the US and maybe some Japan and some other allies are on the other. I mean, this feels really tense in a way that I don't know. I, I'm only middle-aged. It, I, I don't know if I've ever seen or felt anything like this. Maybe this is World War II-ish? I think this is the way you have to look at it. You always prepare for the worst and you hope for the best, but you don't stick your head in the sand. All right? I'm always hopeful that when the government of China, the government of Russia, when the citizens say, hey, this is really bad for me as a citizen, they're going to say, look, look, Putin, I mean, this is not the type of government I want. And you, she, and so either they'll change or they'll leave one or the other. But I can't dictate what Putin's going to do. I can't dictate what she's going to do. I can dictate what I do. I'm going to do everything I can to figure out where things made, stop buying their stuff, make sure we get American companies to understand the risk of doing business in Russia and China and then work every day to get ourselves as independent as we can. Think about, that's what we all do as individuals. When we leave home, none of us say, oh, I wanna be dependent on somebody the rest of my life. No, we try to be independent. That's what we, this country has to be. That's what our allies have to be. Senator, one last question for you. I I know you've taken a a lot of heat. You've gone on a lot of shows about your 11 point plan. You've you've written an op ed sort of in in defense of your your plan after, I guess, some reaction from your fellow Republicans and even Democrats. Talk to me a little bit about this plan before I let you go, because there is some criticism about this idea of everybody having skin in the game, meaning even some of our lowest income earners would 
be paying taxes under a plan, a domestic plan that you've put forward. Can you talk about why the focus is, is on maybe having some of our lowest income earners paying federal tax as opposed to, I don't know, maybe what the president's focused on, which is having you know billionaires pay more? Well, first off, everybody can go to rescueamerica.com. You can give me your thoughts. I put out 11 steps, 128 points. My whole focus is, is let's come up with something we're going to do. I've been up here three years. I want to get something done. I think we're going to get a majority this year in the House and the Senate. Then I want to do something to rescue this country. This country is in trouble. So here, it's, it's real simple to me. There are people in this country that could go to work. They're able-bodied. And they have figured out how to not have to you know, do anything. They're just dependent on government. They don't pay any taxes. Well, I know you and you talk about freeloaders and you talk about freeloaders in the plan, but I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who actually do work, but make a very low income. But what I'm talking about is people that are freeloading. What I'm talking about is what the Democrats have done is they've set up a system where people don't have to work, but they could work. That is that's what I'm focused on. I grew up in a very poor family. We went to church. My mom said, I don't care if you take a penny. When you go to church, you're going to put something in the offering. Right? We're in this game together. We got to build this country together. And that's what my focus is. But who I'm really focused on right now is the people that could go to work and they've decided they're going to just take all these government programs. Senator, you stuck your you stuck your neck out with this plan because you, you did get some heat. Are you running for president in 2024? No, I run for the Senate uh, in 2024. But I'm tell you what I'm focused on. I'm a business guy. In business, what did I do? I wrote a plan. I wrote a plan. It's not that far-fetched. How do you get stuff done in business? You write a plan. When I ran for governor, I wrote a plan and we beat our plan. We need to be doing the exact same here thing here. When we get the majority back, what are we gonna do? I wanna get something done. Senator Rick Scott of Florida, thank you so much for your time as always. All right, see you, Jessica, bye-bye. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. This is Ian Pryor with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. Katanji Brown-Jackson has an easier path now to the Supreme Court. I know that my role as a judge is a limited one. What she told senators last week was good enough for Susan Collins, the first Republican to come out in support of the judge, saying she may not agree with her on everything, but Jackson has sterling credentials and experience and integrity. A few other GOP senators might also support Jackson, but most do not. Josh Hawley tells Fox. It's just a fact that this is a woke judge who has been soft on crime, and that's not the kind of person we need on the bench. Republican senators at last week's hearing questioned her sentencing in child porn cases and her public defender work for Guantanamo terror suspects. GOP leader Mitch McConnell said on the Senate floor yesterday. Judge Jackson's personal policy views on criminal sentencing have clearly slanted our jurisprudence. Republicans are also critical she refused to answer questions about supporting or opposing attempts to expand the Supreme Court to undo a conservative majority. Democrats have praised Jackson, who's in line to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. Today, you're my star. 
You are my harbinger of hope. Senator Cory Booker teared up at last week's hearing. Jackson would be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, will be better because of you. The confirmation vote could come next week. The big question has been how many Republicans would be willing to vote for Jackson. Jonathan Turley is a George Washington University law professor and Fox News contributor. There's a reason why she was the top choice of many of the far left groups. I mean, they anticipate that she will follow a fairly liberal interpretation of the Constitution. All right. Now, now, Senator Collins says she doesn't agree with everything and all of her, her rulings, but she thinks that she has the credentials. She thinks the experience and the integrity. Is that the way it used to be when it came to these confirmation votes with other justices and not that long ago, really? That changed with the Bork confirmation uh, process. Uh, The Democrats with Bork said that they would oppose him because they simply disagreed with how he viewed the Constitution. Ever since then, it's become the norm for senators to use that as a basis to vote against nominee. That was particularly apparent uh, in the case of Amy Comey Barrett. Justice Barrett was incredibly credentialed uh, and qualified. Uh, There is no question that she's a brilliant jurist. Uh, Democratic senators just came out and said, look, we don't necessarily disagree that she has uh, all these accomplishments, but we just feel that her interpretation or approach to the Constitution is wrong. And and there was also, and, and, and Professor, there was also the issue of that was so close to an election and Democrats were very against that. Yeah, but some the senators themselves on the floor actually cited her judicial philosophy. Many did, in fact, note uh, that the Republicans had denied a vote for Merrick Garland when it was close to an election. Uh, but they also, a number of others also said, no, we're going to vote against her because uh, she just holds a different view of constitutional interpretation. How do you think Judge Jackson did in the hearing last week? I did. She, I think she did quite well. You know, she's an, a very uh, personable, engaging person. Uh, I thought that uh, some of the senators were out of line with their tone or questions. I publicly criticized Senator Cotton, who I felt uh, was treating her unfairly. Um, having said that, she did refuse to answer questions about judicial philosophy. Instead, she talked about her judicial methodology. And that's not the same thing. By the second day of testimony, she came out and just said, my judicial philosophy is my judicial methodology. And by that, she talked about how she does not rule on cases from her personal viewpoints or bring bias to a record. Well, that's the judicial oath that you take to hold office. That can't be your judicial philosophy. That's that's what you promise to do as a judge. All judges give that oath to be impartial. Uh, So it was, in my view, not a very convincing answer to judicial philosophy. What was really interesting is that senators who demanded that Barrett talk about judicial philosophy and voted against her on that basis came out and said, well, who cares about judicial philosophy? Yeah. And now from the Democrats who support her to 
many of the Republicans, they focused a lot on her record dealing with some child pornography cases as a judge. How do you think that went? Do you think that they went too far with the questioning or or calling her soft on crime? Or do you think she didn't explain herself? Well, how did that go in your view? The Democrats said over and over again that she didn't have to talk about judicial philosophy. You have her cases. You can look at her cases and judge what type of judge she is. Well, they did. And they didn't like the cases uh, involving child pornography, where she departed significantly um, to give lower sentences. Now, as I've said publicly, there are plenty of judges, plenty of academics and lawyers who have long objected to the sentencing guidelines for child pornography. Uh, These are really stiff sentences, and Jackson is not the only one who has said that they're out of line with uh, other guidelines for other crimes. And so I think it is a mistake to portray her as as a far outlier or extremist on this point. Uh, This whole hearing was treated by both sides uh, as a forum for the midterm elections. I mean, it it, at points, it seemed entirely detached from Judge Jackson. Uh, I've been a critic of these confirmation hearings for a long time because they have the nutritional value of a Slurpee. I mean, they just (laughs) they have it's all when it comes to talking about cases, it's like baby talk on both sides because nobody wants to talk about substance. You know, nominees are told by the White House, for God's sake, don't get into substantive discussions. And the senators do this political kabuki for the cameras. And the content is virtually nil in terms of substance. All right, let's switch gears and focus on a sitting Supreme Court justice. Is Clarence Thomas under scrutiny because his wife caused controversy. Ginny Thomas, she attended a pro-Trump rally hours before the Capitol riot in 2021. The Democrat-led House committee is investigating, and they've uh, obtained these messages that she had sent to then-White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, encouraging them to keep fighting over alleged election fraud. And she wrote, save us from the left taking America down. Um, Professor, I want you to hear what Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar told ABC's This Week on Sunday. You have the wife of a sitting Supreme court justice advocating for an insurrection, advocating for overturning a legal election to the sitting president's chief of staff. And she also knows this election, these cases are going to come before her husband. This is a textbook case for removing him, recusing him from these decisions. All right, Professor Turley, your reaction to all of that? Well, first of all, I think that Ginny Thomas would say that none of these messages advocated insurrection. She was advocating both legal and legislative challenges to the election. I mean, she went to the rally and said that she left before before Trump ever spoke. Uh, She never went to Capitol Hill. So what she was doing was political advocacy. And in this in this city, Power couples often have separate lives. Ginny Thomas is a well-known Republican activist. She is a Trumper. She believes strongly in Trump. She also believes the election was stolen. Lots of Republicans believe that. 
I don't. You know, after the election, I wrote columns saying I don't see any systemic fraud here. And I also you know, wrote columns saying there isn't a basis, in my view, to challenge certification. And also Pence doesn't have the authority that Trump was saying he had. Now, all of that I still believe is true. She obviously doesn't. You know, to this day, 20, only 22 percent of Republicans polled say they believe that Biden was legitimately elected. In my view, they're wrong. But this is political speech. She was advocating with the White House. Now, does that mean that you can impeach uh, Justice Thomas, as, as various members have called for, it is perfectly bonkers to suggest that this would be an impeachable offense. But then finally, in terms of recusal, I think that there's a good argument to make that if Thomas knew that that his wife's messages were part of this tranche of material, he should have recused himself to avoid an appearance of a conflict. But it would be just an appearance in the sense that all of these messages of Ginny Thomas were actually already disclosed to Congress. The decision that he voted on had no impact on her messages being given to Congress. They already had those messages. All right, let's back up because you're you're referencing the vote at the Supreme Court. It was eight to one in favor of rejecting former President Trump's executive privilege claim, which allowed the Democrat-led committee to get access to some of these records that that they've gotten, like White House call logs and all this other stuff. So that's what Democrats are saying, that, look, that one vote was Justice Thomas, and maybe he's influenced by his wife. Well, there's a couple of issues I think should be added to that to give the correct context. One is this wasn't actually a an opinion. It was a vote on whether the court would intervene. Okay. And he didn't write any um, uh, um, any actual decision. It was noted that one justice dissented. Also, this is perfectly consistent with Thomas's uh, position uh, for over 30 years. He has a robust view of executive privilege and powers, one that I happen to reject. I don't understand uh, how he goes as far as he does. But this was a perfectly consistent position with his prior uh, opinions. And so should he have recused from that? I think he should have. Uh, But these justices insist that these are discretionary rules left up to them. He obviously decided he didn't have to recuse. Um, Now, that may be because he already knew that his that these messages were given to Congress or he didn't know that there were messages uh, or he simply did not see how this case really protects his wife. Jonathan Turley, law professor, George Washington University, Fox News contributor. Thank you very much for being with us again. Thank you. Download Fox News Channel's The Five podcast for free. Five of your favorite Fox News personalities discuss current issues in a roundtable discussion. Get it now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. What's on your mind? There are egregious examples of government-run school districts in all 50 states trying to assert themselves as big father and big mother. But one district in particular has emerged as an early contender to be the ignoble Loudoun County of 2022, Eau Claire area in Wisconsin. From white privilege tests to heterosexual privilege checklists, 
to teacher trainings that urge students to hide gender transitions from their parents, woke bureaucrats in the Badger State have launched an all-out assault on parental rights. You may not live in Wisconsin or anywhere near it, but you need to pay very close attention to what's going down in Eau Claire. It's now where the progressive playbook for hijacking education and a range of other issues that must remain innate to parents is being run. And know that playbook was meticulously designed by powerful forces and intended for nationwide implementation. Eau Claire began to show its radicalizing hand in earnest earlier this month. Three candidates for school board shared a teacher training presentation that proclaimed, facilitators, guide this discussion about sexual and gender identity. Remember, parents are not entitled to know their kids' identities. That knowledge must be earned. Stunningly, both the superintendent and the school board president fully defended the training. Eau Claire facilitators, a title that smacks of 1984, should also, according to the training, have no qualms about steamrolling parents who have religious objections to gender transition. We're told those objections are nothing more than the weaponization of religion against queer people. When the conversation turns to navigating parents' faith-based rejection of their students' queer identity, the training continues, it's critical to remember that we must not act as stand-ins for oppressive ideas, behaviors, attitudes, even and especially if that oppression is coming from parents. Never forget that you may be the only supporting person in that student's sphere. Guard and preserve that responsibility. Wow. Unfortunately, ideological trainings such as this aren't just sitting on the cloud. Eau Claire teachers are enthusiastically embracing them. Eau Claire area's actions are dangerous, not only to the mental, emotional, and physical health of its students, but also to the constitutional rights of parents enshrined in the first and 14th amendments. In fact, it is declared that parental interest in the care, custody, and control of their children is perhaps the oldest of fundamental liberty interests recognized by the Supreme Court. To fight back against woke school districts like Eau Claire, parents must press for every single piece of information, including all instructional materials and teacher trainings. To do this, they must use Freedom of Information Act requests, state right-to-know laws, and the Protection of Pupil Rights Amendment, which provides parents with a federal right to access and inspect virtually all material involving the education of their children. Speaking at school board meetings, writing letters to the editor, and participating in the electoral process is crucial. But with primary source material comes immense power to confront the educational industrial complex by exercising your constitutional and statutory rights in court. This is Ian Pryor, Senior Advisor for America First Legal and Executive Director of Fight for Schools. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.